Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone to a brand new series of motorsport podcasts. Many of you will have listened to our Engineering Formula One driver series with the likes of Patrick Head, Adrian Newey, and Gordon Murray earlier this year. I'm delighted to bring you the next set of recordings. This time, we turn our attention to the Scuderia, the Formula One team that's so famous, it's simply referred to as the team. Founded in 1939 and a constant on the F1 grid since that first world championship in 1950, Ferrari is the team that every driver wants to race for. 221 pole positions, 253 fastest laps, 238 Grand Prix victories, and let's not forget the 16 Formula One World Championships. For all its success and wonderful history though, Ferrari has always been a tricky place to work. Many drivers have left or been unceremoniously kicked out after little more than a season. What is Ferrari like to drive for? And what of Enzo himself? In this series of podcasts, we speak to the men who know best, those lucky few who have driven for Ferrari during their Formula One careers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Motorsport Podcast. And today we have an absolute treat for you. Another episode in our Driving for Ferrari series. We've got Derek Bell joining us from sunny Florida. Derek, thank you so much for joining us from, from across the pond. It's a pleasure and a delight to talk to you, Ed. Uh, Derek obviously needs no introduction. Five-time Le Mans winner, three-time Daytona 24 Hours winner, and two World Drivers' Championships to his name. We're going to focus on Ferrari today, though. And really with you, Derek, it was fascinating, looking back at your career, how quickly things happened for you at the start. Because if we sort of annoyingly fast-forward past Formula 3 to your F2 move, Am I right in thinking that it was at this time the colonel, your stepfather, said, I'm not paying for this anymore. You've got to go and do it. So you, you, did, you wrote a lot of letters, didn't you, to get that budget yeah. for F2? Yeah, that's right. Well, it, 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 on, when I look back at it, at the, t at the time, you're going, God, this has taken a long time to get up into Formula 2 and Formula 1. And then you reflect on it now and you think, blimey, that was, you know, 60 years, 58 years ago or something or whatever it was. And, um, you know, we actually got there remarkably quickly. I mean, one year with the Lotus 7 and then two and a half years, really, with two seasons. I didn't do all the races in Formula 3. And then suddenly, you know, I got my, you know, option, no options. The option is only options to go up to Formula 2. Robin Widows uh, from up in Surrey, he had been in F3 with me. And generally speaking, I used to be, beat him in Formula 3. But he went on up into uh, Formula 2. And I saw how he was doing really quite well. And I thought, well, if he can do quite well in F2, I could do even better. So it encouraged me to move out of F3. And I remember a guy called Roy Pike had stayed in Formula 3 for like four years, or three, four years. And he was the best. He was lightningly quick. And there was Peter Geffen, Jonathan Williams, 
you know, all these, um, you know, Piers, as they Piers Courage, I mean, so many people that were good, but they're all a year ahead of me in experience or two. And um, I thought, I've got to go up to F2. So I spoke with my stepfather and he said, well, better try and raise some more money, than, you know. And, and sponsorship was just starting at that time. Um, and I mean, Jimmy Clark, if you re recollect, had that, I think, in 67, he had it on it for the Dutch Grand Prix on his yeah, Lotus. God, God Lotus. And so I remember, I remember we, we thought, well, that's great. We'll just write letters and people will throw the money at us. <laughs> and I never forget, I mean, thank God I haven't got one of the letters, which is one of my appealing letters for money. But I, and the strangest thing was I didn't get really many replies at all. I think you got above. one, didn't you? I got one. Yes. I got one back from I got one back from Avis, and in it there was one of these buttons you put on your jacket, and it says "We try harder," and that was it. So that that was that was all I got to get into motor racing financially. And so the old the Colonel, my old my stepfather, you know, um, he said he said, "Come, we've got to do this." And I, I, I bless his heart, he he did think I could be quite useful. I had never had any confidence that I was good enough. I just wanted to do it and felt it would be fun. And uh, so we actually went to the bank, went to the National Westminster Bank in Bognor, in West Bognor, his branch. And I remember the bank manager said, oh yes, you know, uh, we'll loan you 10,000 pounds. So they loaned us 10,000, which was, I mean, the old man never got into the, into the red. He never, the whole of his life, he was one of the, he was a Cornishman. And he completely said no way to, to getting in debt. So we borrowed 10,000 against the fact we had a 600 acre farm. But um, so I think they were pretty secure. And that was it. I went out and we put it. And by this time I'd realized, uh, having had notices for a year in Formula 3 and then the Brabham, which of course was, was what every driver needed because it drove itself for you really. And uh, so we went and put a, disc, a deposit down on a Brabham. I think it was, I, I can't remember the damn chassis, BT23, I think. We put yeah. the... We put the deposit down on that of two and a half thousand pounds, and we put the deposit down on uh, on, on two Cosworth engines, two and a half for each. And then, it le and then with, after that, we we put the deposit down, ordered them and everything. And George Brown, the mechanic we had from around Bodmer, he went and uh, he he worked at um, Brabham assembling our car. It was like chassis number three or something. So he learned all about it. So we did it really properly. We said, you know, we're going to race this thing. You need to know, you know, how the car's constructed. And he was a bloody good mechanic. He used to work for UDT Lay School before that, but a local lad. And uh, obviously we ordered a Cosworth engine, in fact, too. And, and then, of course, we had the, uh, we bought a, a Ford Transit van and a trailer. And that was what we were going to go racing with. And a load of spare gears and bits and pieces. So, I mean, it's, and, it's, a, it's a lot of stuff for £10,000, isn't it? You it was a lot of stuff. Today. <laughs> Can you imagine it? I mean, it was unbelievable <laughs> when I think about it. And we got the car, like, I, I think um, Ken Tyrrell got his car first for Jackie Stewart. Quite naturally, Jackie had been world champion, I think, already at that point. And, um, and, and we got ours, like, second or third. And, of course, my first race, uh, you know, I went out and... I haven't got my book. I should. It's stupid. I didn't prepare for this question, uh, but I, I, um, I thought my first race was um, at uh, Thruxton. In fact, I went to Hockenheim first. So, so you finished. Was it third there? Third there, yes. Yeah, and then you finished third at the at the Sudschleifer as well. That's right. 
that was a bit later. That was a bit later. Yeah, but yeah, the should slacker. But the begin. I'm talking at the very beginning. And I remember I finished third at Thruxton anyway. On East, uh, I think it might have even been Easter weekend. And I remember um, I, I sort of finished third, I think, to Jean-Pierre Beltoise and Jochen Rint. And so that, and I was the, sort of the leading non-graded driver, in fact, because they had graded and graded. So it was, gave us Formula 2 was just this jump out, which was fantastic in that as Formula 2 drivers, drivers on their way up, if you like, Formula 3, Formula 2, you could actually race against world's, the best in the world. And Jimmy Clark and Jackie Stewart and... That Jack Brab, I mean, they would all come down to our level because they loved racing, you know, and Formula 2 was a wonderful class of car. So I had some pretty damn good results and then sadly went off for that tragic day to Hockenheim and uh, to do the Formula 2 race there. And, of course, the tragic story of Jimmy Clark, um, you know, dying there sort of put the kibosh on my career quite a lot, actually. Because, you know, everybody kept saying, my family kept saying, well, and friends, you know, when are you going to get yourself a decent job, be a lawyer or a, a priest or something? You know, you've got to get, you've got to have something responsible to do in your life and stop being a playboy. But it must, and, have, uh, we, it must have been a real shock that weekend because you were very much the new guy. And I think you had dinner with Graham and Jim Clark that, the night before. And you were slightly in awe of these two. You know, these guys were at the, yeah. you know, at the top of their game yeah. in Formula One. Yeah. And, I guess when you know when you're that young and you're coming into the sport, you're quite impressionable. And then yeah. to say goodbye to Jim in the morning and him yeah. around the office, that must yeah. it's a tough thing to race through. That yeah, well, I mean, elaborating a little bit, I'd never met Jimmy, but I had met Graham, and um, you know, there I was in the the, the Luxoff Hotel at Speyer, just out on the edge of the Rhine there, and they walked in bucketing down with rain all day on the Saturday, done crap practice and everything. And they walked in the hotel and we all ended up having a cup of tea together with my stepfather and we had biscuits by the fire and everything. It was lovely. And then we were chatting. We had a long chat. And I remember saying to Jimmy, I said, so he, um, I said, oh, I said, how did you get on today? So he said, so he said, oh, I was seventh quickest. I said, oh, really? He said, where did you find? I said, I was fourth. And I thought, how the heck am I quicker than him? You know, it's Jimmy Clark. And he, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, no, we have a misfire. And uh, he said, so when you come up behind me tomorrow, don't get to, to lap me, he said, don't get too close. And that was it. And so we had a lot, a lot more chats and that sort of thing. And then they, he and Graham, we said, okay, see you tomorrow. There we're going to a dinner with obviously the organizers. And uh, I went off with the old man somewhere. And um, they said, you know, we'll give you, we'll take you in in the morning. So the next morning, I, the car at, my car had gone off. George Brown had taken it to the track and Jimmy's car had gone as well. Uh, he drove for Ron Harris race uh, Lotus then in Formula 2. And um, so, you know, I jumped in their car and went to the track and they dropped me off at my truck and that was it. And, and, and um, you know, on the grid, I've got this amazing photograph that I suddenly found on, online and on the front rows, Kurt Ahrens on pole facing here and I'm on the second row here and then behind me over here was Jimmy it's the most amazing shot you can see all three of our helmets the first and the fourth and the seventh driver you know and um you know the stadium's full of people it was packed out and of course you know his had whatever problem it was he disappeared off the road on that long fast curve now called the Jim Clark curve yeah I mean to, to go from kind of what one great to another it's, you know, the reason why I wanted to talk about this Formula 2 season is because it really you only did a few races before getting a call from Ferrari. And this is, yeah. this is four years 
from doing your first ever race at Goodwood and winning that? I mean, it must have, did you believe it when you first got the call? For, let me just say, firstly, I, never, I, I, I dreamt of being in Formula One. I think we all did. I mean, every driver, certainly European driver, Americans is slightly different, I think, but uh, certainly want to get into Formula One. And my dream was to be in just do a Formula One race, just to race a Formula One car. And um, not imagining, I mean, my dream never was to go to Ferrari. I thought, well, who would I go, who, who would my dream be? I mean, Ferrari was the fantasy. It was so far out there that I never thought. I mean, why did they have me, you know? I mean, you think about the people that they had had over the years and so on. And, um, and then out of the blue, I got this call from Keith Ballisat at Shell saying, you know, um, Mr. Ferrari wanted me to go for a, a test, but they were coming over for the Crystal Palace Formula 2 event, which I think was in June, mid, mid to late. I can't get it. I, again, I can tell you if I had my book out. <laughs> and... Um, and so uh, we'd like you to test after Crystal Palace at Goodwood, can you believe? And of course, I knew Goodwood, not that well, but I had driven my Lotus there, 7 there and 1 there, and I'd put a, won the Formula 3 race at Goodwood, and I tested there with a Formula 2 car. So I knew it really well. Um, and they said, but, but Jackie X is driving into Crystal Palace this weekend, therefore, you know, uh, we've got to wait till after race. Of course, I finished the race and Jackie crashed or had damage. And he didn't finish. So I thought, oh, bloody hell, Bell's luck just as normal. You know, he's not going to get the drive in the right car. So the, they said, we'll call him sometime. And I thought, that's it. Never hear from them again. Because I didn't exactly shine necessarily at Crystal Palace. But I mean, and now I look back, I realize they watch your drives everywhere. They study how you did it, like they do with footballers or tennis players. They, they study your form. And obviously, my form was modestly good. And then a few, then I guess about. Uh, Two weeks later, I got a call from Keith Ballisat saying, um, would I go out and test at, at Monza? And so that's how it's sort of how it got going. But um, you know, that bit, it would, the dream was never to go to Ferrari. That was beyond my comprehension. You, I think did you, you went out to meet Enzo, didn't you? And he took, you went well, off to lunch with him. Oh, yeah. No, was well, that before with, the test? Oh, sorry. I'm, yeah, I start with, and I, I, I did the test. I don't know what day it was of the week, probably a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So I flew out and then went to the Monza. I'd raced Formula 3 at Monza in those hideous Lotteria races. <laughs> and um, done two or three races there, but they're all slipstreams in the days when there were only five corners. <laughs> and, um, and you had to have the fastest car. And uh, I, so I did the test. There were about, there were a dozen drivers there. And I was the only Englishman. And... Um, I, I always think Ferrari wanted me to drive for him because he didn't stick any other Englishman in there to sort of push me to make me go quicker. It was like, I just want to see that he doesn't screw up. I don't know what they thought. So I did my test and they said, okay, thanks, Mr. Bell, you're driving for us. You know, really? So that night, so they said, come drive down to Maranello. So I stayed there. We actually went to Modena and stayed at the Rayofini Hotel. And it was, the most, I mean, just the most amazing feeling that there I was in the middle and the heart of Ferrari on my own, you know, I mean, there was nobody to say, excuse me, I just tested for Ferrari. I mean, I couldn't get excited with anybody apart from myself. So going, God, can, can, you, I, can you believe this? And so I had dinner quietly on my own and I had a glass of wine and I, because I knew I wasn't driving the next day. And I had some, um, I had some tortellini alla panna at the Real Fini Hotel. And it stuck with me forever that, that is the, that's the meal of choice for me. It's uh, tortellini. It was the most beautifully sort of soft, tender um, pasta. Anyway, I won't go into that. Um, and, so, and then the next day, they, I went out to the factory. 
And of course, you know, I was taken around by this young man who's like, who in fact was, I think actually, I don't know who took me around that. It wasn't Gotzi, who was the head of motorsport really, but it, I was just shown around. And as we were walking, but there was nobody there. There's nobody working. And you can't believe how small Ferrari it was. I mean, that famous entrance there and Enzo's office was on the left as you walked in. And then straight ahead of you was the factory, but it wasn't big. And uh, just like an industrial building, you know, with red tiles on the roof and that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I um, was walking through and I, I was actually astonished. There was nobody there. And so I said to the guy, I said, so, you know, why is there no people working today? And he said, oh, today's a national holiday. And there are a lot of those in Italy. There's a lot of those in Italy, <laughs> commonly called strikes. So anyway, I looked at, we went, walked around and it was intriguing. It was most intriguing, you know, to see the village of steel at one end. And then at the other end, it was a crankshaft for a V12. You know, it was astonishing. And, um, and, and then suddenly, uh, I, I, I guess I knew that Enzo was about to appear at some point. And then sort of round the corner with, and I, I'll never forget it as long as I live, uh, round the corner sort of in this big, long building. Again, it wasn't that big, but it was pretty large. I came uh, this tall, very tall guy with silver hair and tinted glasses, immaculate wearing a raincoat draped over his shoulders, you know. And beside him was a, was a much smaller person walking with him. And the guy with, who took me around, whose name, of course, I never he ever got to know, he said, um, he said, oh, here comes El Comandatore now. He is the one on the left. As if there was any doubt, it was the one is the Ferrari. And that's how I met the old man. And he walked up this avenue between all, his, all the road cars up on an assembly line up here. And I thought, and I've always thought, even dear old Michael Schumacher never met Enzo, actually. But he never, he would never have seen what I saw, and so many drivers have never experienced meeting Enzo as he walked down the middle between all his cars, all up on you know, road cars, red, reds and yellows and silvers and all the rest of it, up on the assembly line, and he walked down towards me. I mean, that would have made such a picture for a, for a, for a great magazine about the history of Ferrari. And I've always remembered that. And then we got talking. He, he wouldn't talk to me and he, he but supposedly wouldn't speak English. So we spoke French together. And I, at that point, I wasn't that good at front. French. I learned a lot later because I raced with Pescarello and people. And um, so we, we chatted and he said, OK, we'll go, let's go over to lunch. So we went over, you know, to the, the, the Cavalino, had lunch with him in his little room that still exists there today. Just three, he, me, and Gotzi, just three of us. And that was it. He talks a lot about Jochen Rink. He was very, um, he was very interested in how good Jochen was because Jochen was sort of, a, I think, in that area that he was, well, sadly, he, did, he didn't much, much later before he died, but he was sort of, he was the young, he was amazing driver. He was the star, you know, of my life at that point. I mean, Sterling was always my idol, but. Uh, Jochen was magnificent and I had some good results against him in the Brabham so I never beat him but I often finished close to him you know and um, so anyway that that was my beginning with Mr. Ferrari. And obviously for the likes of myself and so many other racing drivers as you mentioned there with Schumacher even those that drove for Ferrari never saw him or never met him um, mm. And all I have to go on is kind of a little bit of footage, but mostly photographs. And as you said, you know, with the dark glass on the silver hair, did his persona and character kind of match what you see in photographs? Was he quite a mysterious sort of character with a, with a sort of great big aura around him? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to realize as well. Yes, definitely. Yes. But at the same time, I was 27, 26, 27. 
So, and I'd been, you know, living on a, I'd been working on a farm in Pagan, Sussex. So I wasn't meeting uh, these sort of characters in life. You know, I hadn't met, I hadn't met Ken Terrell. I hadn't met John Cooper. I mean, you heard the names and, you know, the big names of the world. That's just racing. Um, so I hadn't met major executives of companies, but I just knew that he was this astonishing character. And of course, I'd read the stories about him. And also, I mean, one of the reasons it was difficult for me to ever sign to drive for them was the fact that there was a massive article, I think it was like in the Times or one of the English newspapers about a picture of Enzo standing there and this car, a light, you know, in flames above him. And it sort of says Ferrari kills his drivers. And I hadn't signed my contract when that story was written. In fact, I hadn't even gone to, to Maranello then. So he had this amazing sort of, background story to his his personality and i don't think you ever really got to know his personality because he he always sort of he looked at you when he talked but you didn't know if he was really looking at you he took mm. you, you thought that he he talked to you because he felt he ought to <laughs> but i did get to know him better eventually and you know i used to go out to dinner with him i'd get a call and they'd say you know tonight you'll have dinner with el commandatore and i go oh god i was going out with night parks and the guys you know i was looking forward to it we went to, was that there was Brenda Verner was involved then, and she was Enzo's secretary, an English girl. And of course, he, she was the only girl I think that worked in the factory. The old man wouldn't trust all his mechanics with any females. And so Brenda was the only one, and who I think, you know, was a close friend of Mike, Mike Parks's. But we were just a, a lovely group of people. And, you know, Enzo would phone and I'd have to go out to dinner with him, and he'd come and pick me up and whistle me off at great speed to some restaurant out in the country. It was amazing, but he, but basically his his character, he was how you saw him in pictures and how you heard what he was like. But he, I mean, he wasn't sort of don't want to talk to you. It's like he he would ask the question, wait for an answer, and then ask another one. Yeah. You know, he never said, well, tell tell me about that race you had at Thruxton. You know, he wouldn't have asked that. Yeah, yeah. I did. You mentioned that you obviously you know you went out for dinner with him. And I think mm. nowadays we're sort of so used to the world of celebrities and things because of social media and mm. everything like that. But it must have been these restaurants he went to, I'm sure there must have been quite a kind of atmosphere when you walked in with Enzo, you know, because he was really, yeah. one of, he was probably the, one of the most famous people in Italy, if not the world. Yeah, at that yeah time. I know. I, I, you know, it's, it's weird. I mean, my memory's not bad. I, I got a really good memory for things that I keep told. But well, you remembered what you ate the, the night before you met him. Yeah, that's <laughs> Amazing right. Amazing memory. That's right. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, he, he, we would, I remember vividly going with him in, his, in the two plus two and we'd drive off somewhere. Which, we, I must have eaten out with him six or seven times, which is, I think, a lot more than some drivers ever did. And, um, you know, we'd walk in and I never forget it. He actually would open the door for me. When he got there, he would stand back and let me walk in. And uh, I never forget it. But of course, I, I don't know. I, I never noticed people in awe that it was Enzo Ferrari. They had to be. I think I was almost too young to understand that sort of, that sort of, um, you know, sort of emotion that people had for, for, pe for people like Enzo. I yeah. think it's also because, you know, you re you've got to realise there was not the publicity. There wasn't the television then, you know, so the, you've never read stories week after week about Enzo. Can you imagine now if Enzo had been out there, the stuff that would have been flowing through the interviews about why the car had this problem at, in Austria, why it had a problem last week and, you know, Vettel's accident. I mean, Enzo would have been pum pummeled all the time. The only press that really asked him were the, were the you know, Gazzetta della Sport in Italy and 
and a couple of other Italian newspapers. And they would, you know, they were awful to him and, and his drivers, and they pulled them apart if the drivers didn't, you know, feature well. But, but I didn't get any impression going into a restaurant that we were any different to anybody else. And it's uncanny, really, when I reflect on it. Yeah. I mean, if I walked in with Enzo today, I'd have gone around. I hope you can see me, everybody. And with Enzo Ferrari, you know. <laughs> yeah, a massive sign. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, no, no, lucky. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, and, and I mean, and we often had team dinners. I mean, you know, before, before the, before the Italian Grand Prix um, at Monza, he had a, a, we always have a dinner during the week, you know, before practice and that sort of thing. I mean, he, he was, I, I thought he was an amazing man, very interesting. And as I've said before, um, you know, I would be in the factory. I hadn't been married long then. I was in the factory, but I still hadn't signed my contract at this point. I didn't sign for some weeks because I was worried about this story. I mean, I did, we didn't have managers. We didn't have anybody to advise us and say, you should do this and you should ask for this. I mean, it's whatever they gave me on a bit of paper I'd be happy to take. I just wanted to race for Ferrari. We did, certainly in those days, one never considered, how much am I going to earn out of this? It was, where can I go with this? You know, is it going to be good for me? And as a young driver, all you can think is, to race for Ferrari has to be a step up in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, uh, because surely at some point you could have a good result. And in yeah. some ways I did have some like on the Tasman and, you know, a couple of races, some moderately good results. It was the wrong time and the wrong place, but I still had that. And, you know, it was just special to be with him. But so I, di I didn't sign my contract for some time because of this um, problem with, um, uh, you know, the, uh, with, with, with sort of what did I ask for? How did, what were they going to offer me? Were they really going to, were they, was I getting Formula One? Was I getting Formula Two? And basically they favored me in Formula Two to start with. Remember they had two drivers, they had X and they had Chris Amon. And so I, they didn't need a third, but Enzo was always looking for somebody for the future as they all are today. And so I was signed up to do F2. And um, of course, you know, I went off to do my first race and I got pole position at Monza with with 50 cars or something on the grid, amazing great grids we used to have for that. And of course, in the race, we had a massive crash where I was involved with. Um, I wouldn't say it was anything, it was my fault, but it was one of those, you know, drifts, you know, big drift thing around the parabolic at two abreast, 16 of us in a group. And, and I, somebody said I was hit from behind. I think something broke on the suspension, but whatever it was, I just flipped round suddenly. And there was no reason to do that at the parabolic at the point that it happened. And so that was that. And because two, three for us crashed. And also my say, did, how many, how many Dinos did you write off? Was it four? There was three. No, the fourth That's one just, got away with it. But the right. worst thing, the big trouble was my own Brabham crash. Peter, Peter Westbury was driving. He got involved too. And I went, oh my Lord. And I looked at his carnage. I go, oh my goodness. Terrible day at the office. So, I, the, so I, anyway, got out of the pits. They gave me 250 quid. And, um, for my race, and I, let, I thought, that's it, and I'll never hear from them again. I mean, you know, I've screwed up, hadn't I? And then I think three or four days later, I get a call saying, would you please come to factory and, and sign your contract? Well, I can tell you what, I ran to Heathrow, and I left <laughs> on a plane and took off to, to Milan and went to the factory, and uh, I would have signed anything then. And um, you know, Gotzi said to me, El Comandatorio is so happy with your pole position, your pole qualifying position. Um, you know, here's a thousand dollars. And um, it's like, I mean, it's like, wow, thank you very much.
but that, yeah, that was a sort of atmosphere. But but then when I was, you know, when I and as I said, my wife would, at that time was had actually was very ill. She had a thing called colitis, and she was in and out of hospital in England. And around the time Justin was actually born, and um, uh, I, I would get, I'd walk into the factory in the morning when I was there for any sort of four or five days, three or four days, whatever. And they would sort of say, oh, come on, sorry, we'd like you to go to his office. It's sort of about nine o'clock in the morning. So I would walk through and see the old man, he'd be sitting behind his desk. And he would, he would it, virtually always say, you know, how's your wife today? How's your wife today? And I say, well, it's too early. It's eight o'clock in England. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to give me a report at eight o'clock in the morning. So he said, I'll get my secretary to phone up. And he would, his secretary would phone up uh, the hospital in Chichester and see how my wife was and and then and then report back to me. I mean it was amazing. I had an I had an astonishing relationship with him. He never pushed me. I think he was waiting for something brilliant to happen and it never did. But um but um I mean I did have some moderately good races and on reflection I guess that you know my first Formula One race and and that sort of thing being <coughs> well, on the th- on the mid I was I on the middle or the outside of the inside of the third row next to Stuart and Helm was pretty special. Yeah. I never, I looked back when I was just pissed off that I wasn't on the second row, but I was on the third row of my first Grand Prix with 33 cars there. Right. So I shouldn't, I mean, Jochen Rim was behind me and you had Rodriguez and Jack Brabham and heaven knows about, you know, so many people behind, Dan Gurney, all these kind of great, my hit, sort of heroes in a way. Now, if you're looking for more Ferrari content, then you may well be interested in Motorsport's latest publication. Ferrari, from race to road, celebrates the journey of the world's most famous car brand and its unique place in motor racing history. Using Motorsport's unmatched archive of stories and photographs, we trace the Ferrari story from its early days under Enzo right up to date with interviews with current F1 star Charles Leclerc and F1 team boss Mattia Binotto. Along the way, we celebrate some of the all-time classic race cars, including the wonderful 1975 312T and races such as the Targa Florio. Plus, we test some of the greatest Ferrari road cars. Illustrated with world-class photographs and wonderful writing, Ferrari from race to road is a must-have for all fans of the mark. It's on sale now in all good news agents, or you can buy it via the Motorsport website, which is motorsportmagazine.com. I, w- I wanted to talk about that first race, but it's interesting, just the last kind of 10 minutes, Enzo Ferrari has suddenly become a much more human person to me. Because before, yeah. he's always been that very cold character that people only saw kind of sat on the side of Fiorano in his, in his Ferrari, sort of judging things yeah. from a distance. Yeah. But it's incredible to hear what a wonderful relationship you did have. And he was obviously a very caring person. Um, you know, because he, he had, I think he had a lot of press about not caring, especially with drivers. But your experience yeah. was so different. Yeah, I'd hate to sort of, sort of say why he had that, imp- people got that impression. I think he couldn't stand idiots. And I think he thought most journalists were idiots because I don't think he was keen on doing it. Totally fair. (laughs) And (laughs) I don't know where he got that idea from. And um, uh, I I just got, I mean, I never was with him with journalists around. And I never saw a journalist whenever I was there asking him for an interview. Now, these days, he wouldn't be able to sit at, you know, his his PR person would be fighting the people off because they want to interview Enzo Ferrari. But I mean, he was his own man. I, I would have said he didn't have a PR girl. He had Gotzi, who was his right-hand man. Yeah. And that was it. And that's all he had before that. Yeah. So I, and I must admit, I mean, he, 
he grew on me as a bit, you know, I couldn't say we shook hands. I guess we shook hands when we met on the various occasions or he came to pick me up. And I remember that one occasion, I have to tell you this, he, when, he found, when um, I got a call during the day, they said, um, you'll have dinner with El Commandatore tonight. And I went, oh, yeah, sure. And they, said, and they said, you will pick him up. And I went, oh, my God. So I had to drive to the factory in my Fiat 124, my rental car, because in those days we didn't get loan Ferraris. Nowadays they're thrown at the drivers, but that's all right. I didn't do it for that, but it would have been nice. And um, I remember I went to the factory, picked the old man up, and we went off, and never forget it, to the Gatto Verde, which is a, an Italian restaurant up on the hills, just outside, in, off, outside Marinello, as far as I can remember. And you went up this twisty road up this hill, like a mountain pass, and there was this excellent restaurant, which I, I think is still there. And uh, so, of course, you know, we, I, I guess he got out of the car and I went and parked it or we parked it and walked in together, whatever it was. And, um, and, and then I thought, well, you know, my goodness, I'm going to have to take him home, aren't I? You know, now how fast does he like to be driven? And I, I just couldn't understand it. And I'm going, God, what's he going to expect? Now, I, I'm in a fire fear, 124. I'm driving down a mountain pass. Do I go fast or do I go slow? Because you can think I'm a, a total loser if I drive slowly. <laughs> Or he thinks I'm a lunatic if I drive too fast. But anyway, we, we drove, and I drove all the way back to his home. Which right now, I couldn't tell you where the heck it was. And that was it. Yeah. But he lived very frugally. I went to his uh, when you uh, When you were with Ferrari in those days, Enzo was the one that told you you were going to drive for him the next year. Or that you, if you wanted to, you could. And um, at, the, at the Italian Grand Prix, the race was always on a Saturday. All Grand Prix on a Saturday then. He would, um, you would be invited to go to buy him or to Gotti probably to go to lunch on the Sunday at Bellaria Adriatico, which is where near Rimini, where Enzo had a house. And so, and, and you sort of all day you're waiting, am I going to get asked? Am I? Because the, so the race was over, and uh, which I didn't do that well in. I qualified, what, sixth, seventh, or whatever. But um, in the race, you know, I had that problem with the piston, whatever it was. They were always trying new stuff out of me, I learned later on. Chris had that awful crash and Chris and I were invited to go to dinner on the su- lunch on the Sunday and uh, that's how I knew I was going to drive and I went to drive for him the next year and I, Chris and I drove out there in his Alfa Romeo and uh, you know we went to El- Enzo's house and it was really quite sort of um, frugal I mean it was you know you walked in it was quite dark it was it was like a little it like we'd call it a bungalow it wasn't what you expect Enzo Ferrari's house to be like and Signora Lara was cooking lunch and we just sat around a table and it was Spartan and we had, uh, we didn't drink wine. We might've done, I don't know, uh, but the food was super and, and that was it. We discussed things, but we didn't have to talk about the contract. The fact we were invited there meant that we were racing for him the next year. It's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. The, but yeah. the, uh, there's actually, we've got a question here from Rodrigo S. Um, who's asking about that first race at Monza. You know, this was not only your first Formula One race, it was your first race, for Ferrari, and it was at Monza. Yeah. Um, did you did you realise what a big deal it was at the time? Because you were still pretty young. Yes, I was. Well, I was twenty-seven, wasn't I? Oh, I was. Yes. Okay, I must go to take you back a bit. Ten years before, my dear stepfather, the Colonel. So I was nineteen fifty-eight, and I was seventeen. My father, my stepfather, was a racing fan. Thank goodness, as you realise said, come on, I'm going down to the Italian Grand Prix. And we drove down there in his XK150. 
And we sat in the grandstands at the Italian Grand Prix in 1958. And Sterling was driving, I think it was the one when he drove the Cooper. Uh, he did terribly well in it. And I remember sitting there watching, and there was a race on before the Grand Prix, right opposite the pits. And there was a race on before the Grand Prix for uh, sports cars. And there was this most beautiful red, uh, Ferrari red, um, 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 275, uh, what were they called? 275. Anyway, the, not, not quite, it was, it was the Ferrari California. It was an open cockpit Ferrari California. And this guy, and it was perfect, light tan interior. And this chap drove it in white suit with white helmet. And I went, oh my God. And then I sort of sat there for the Grand Prix. And I thought one day I'm gonna have a Ferrari. But it, it was only just like a flash. It wasn't like, that's it, I'm gonna do it. But can you believe it 10 years later? And I never even thought about it when I was on the grid that I sat up there 10 years ago with my father, one before I ever thought about racing. Well, I did, but I didn't consider I'd ever do it. It's amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, you were still, at that time, you were still six years away from your first race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I had no thought of how I could get around to be a race driver. It was not, I mean, I wanted to be, but I couldn't see it. I guess, it, I guess all these things build up inside you. Um, and of course, there weren't any super young drivers. And Sterling was had been young when he started, and of course, you, you know, Jackie X was younger than me, and Chris Amon was a fraction younger than me. And so, I that that was that was when I got into it. You know, you suddenly found people that were younger and, and also older than you in Formula Three and Formula Two. Uh, but to get through those battles of Formula Three, it was quite amazing to then sort of come out the other end. Sort of, I'm alive. You know, yeah. I can go into Formula One if it works the right way. What did you ask me? So well, it's just, just whether the enormity of that situation at Monza, being on the grid in a Ferrari in your first Formula One race, did, did that register? Or, you know, is that something you look back at now thinking, oh, blimey, you know, that was... Oh, yeah. I look back at it now much more than I did then. I mean, to me, I, I just remember being disappointed that I was on the third row and I hadn't been as quick as I should. <laughs> Such a racing I, mean, I, I must have been within within a, you know, a tenth of a second of Jackie Stewart. And I must have been with much the same within that of Jackie X was on the front, on the next row. And then with, and then on the front row was Chris Amon. And I, I, I wasn't that much slow. I haven't got the lap time somewhere. They, they, would, they could appear, but it's irrelevant really right now. But the fact that I was there at all, the fact that I was on the third row was pretty remarkable. But, but you know, and it was the first time we'd use those wings. I mean, if you can imagine the, the excitement of being on the grid at the Italian Grand Prix with those f fanatical crowds and even, I mean, driving in from the hotel where we stayed at the Santa Storgio and you drive in, you know, we, I don't think we drove our own cars in, I can't remember. I mean, I, my Fiat 124, I might have done, I don't know. <laughs> I've no idea how we got into the track, probably in bands or something. And you had to drove all through Monza Park past the, the horses and all the people out enjoying their weekends in the park and then into the racetrack and that sort of very austere sort of entrance that they have there and that, and that sort of atmosphere of the of the paddock and the buildings which i'm not sure if they've kept any of the old paddock buildings but they were grim you know they have four cars stuck down inside this long yeah. tunnel for each team it was it was it was an amazing atmosphere i can't remember much sort of the intricate details i know there was a super italian restaurant there there were oh, everybody went to eat yeah. it and the, <laughs> you seem great. to have a, a remarkable ability to remember food derek <laughs> Well, I just love Italian food, you know. I mean, yeah, I'm a, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember I hadn't been there very much. In, it was possibly al almost very nearly my very first trip to Italy. I wouldn't say it was, but very nearly. And uh, you'd heard so much about all the Italian food and the wines and that sort of thing. So 
it was all part of it. That's a learning curve. Mm. But I think that the night before the race, you didn't sleep particularly well, did you? So you must, you must <laughs> no, have well, realised that this, this was a fairly big moment in your career. It, just, it was just, yes. I mean, I was, still, I was still one of those guys that had to go to bed at nine o'clock so that he could get at least three hours sleep before nine the next morning. Um, and once I did go to sleep, I was fine. But it was lying in bed, sort of going around the lap and thinking how you could go a bit quicker or why something hadn't happened. And you've got to also realise that people were getting hurt well, hideously in those days. And that had to play on my mind and did the whole way through my career, of course. But, but um, I just remember that night going to bed and, you know, you didn't have an espresso. Well, they don't have them at night anyway, but I didn't have uh, you know, anything much. I ate well properly. I can't remember who I ate with. Uh, possibly was Chris and his girlfriend, and, and that was probably it. And I don't even know if my stepfather, the colonel, came over for that. He might well have done. I can't remember. I think he must have done. And, um, you know, sort of just, we stayed at the Santa Storgia, which I mentioned just now, and that, and it was right in the middle of a town, which, of course, you won't do these days. I'll be staying at some palace outside. But, I mean, the, that damn church bell rang every quarter all the way around and then rang the hour out, you know, boom. And, it, I mean, it backed on to our hotel. <laughs> and that lovely sound, which always, every time I hear it, at a church bell, you know, or watching a movie or something, and you hear, I know it's Italian, you know, and it, because it echoes the way it resonates around the place. And I was like, oh, I'm awake again. Thanks, like three o'clock, four o'clock. And that's how it went on. It was, it was absolutely astonishing. And, um, you know, then I went to the track and I, I never thought about the fact that I might have been tired again. I mean, it was just the fact that you carried on with, to do what you could do. I don't remember how we got to the track. I can't, I can't imagine me because they didn't like you taking cars in because they used to people used to steal them. I don't think they'd have stolen a Fiat One Two Four, but you know it would. You you couldn't take. Never could. Even in those days, you would not take your fancy road car into Monza because you know it'd be gone by lunchtime. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's, I mean, it is, it is amazing looking back, isn't it? But the, it, it kind of your, your Ferrari career, it, t- just tell us what was kind of happening at Ferrari in 69, because you, you had a contract for 69, but it re- as you mentioned earlier, it, it was just the right place at the wrong time. And yeah. it all started going wrong. Yes. Um, it, well, it just, it, had, it just went wrong straight away. Um, 
I mean, I went, the great thing was that nobody really follows and it doesn't matter, but you know, we went off and did the Tasman. So Chris and I went and did, we had the option of a Tasman series, which was four races in New Zealand and three in Australia, sort of consecutive weekends. Um, it was with a Formula 2 car, but with, a, with the engine, which we was actually a two-litre uh, Fiat a V6, a Dino. Well, not Fiat, but it was built, they were in the Fiat road cars um, as well. And, and we, we raced with a 1.6-litre engine, the same engines, you know, whatever you sort of sleeve down or whatever they did. And then for the Tasman, we ran 2.3. And But the engine could have been a 2.4, but they couldn't make it any more. Than, so the, the Lotuses with Cosworth had 2.4 engines or more, 2.5. And we only had, you know, 2.4, just about 2.3. And, um, you know, Chris and I went off and I'll never forget it. I, George Brown and myself, we drove down to Italy in a va- with the van and a trailer, borrowed a double-decker trailer from David Piper. I mean, when you reflect on it, but of course he was a Ferrari man, David. But I mean, these days, nobody would just let you borrow that trailer to go and pick two cars up. And do you know that those two cars came back to him and we drove it back. And never forget, we got to the, got to the border at, above, um, uh, um, above well, near you know, Mont Blanc, that border there, on a Saturday afternoon. They were coming back to England to go on a boat to go to New Zealand. And uh, so we're, we go into the customs place and they won't come out. And, for, and there's nothing, nobody people, there's no people carrying through. You know, it was this, what was it, probably middle of November, not very special weather. And uh, they wouldn't come. They said we had all the papers, carnets, and goodness knows what else. And uh, they weren't the least bit interested in the cars, these two Ferrari Dinos sitting up there in bright red. And, um, and, and then and we said, well, why can't you check us through? And the guy said, well, the, the boss is watching the rugby game right now. When the game's over, you'll be happy. And an hour later, the guy comes out, you know, and he says, yeah, thank, bang, 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 stanks, and off we go. And that was it. And, you know, I think if I might say, I, I, would, I didn't drive back in the truck. I actually drove in my car and George drove it back and, you know, took it up to the docks on the River Thames, on the Thames, Thames Estuary there, and they shipped it out from there with the transit, you know, and, and, uh, just on the trailer and not, yeah. not with the truck. And then, of course, Chris Amon's guys picked it up and uh, that was it. And we, we started our racing. We had these wonderful races and Jock and Rip was there with, with Graham Hill, he had just joined Team Lotus. And then Piers Courage was there with Frank Williams. And then there's Chris and I in the Ferrari, and there was Frank Gardner there in a Mildrum, and numerous, obviously, you know, Australian and New Zealand drivers who haven't got a hope in hell against us because our cars were so much better. Yeah. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful series. And I got to know the guys really well, and I got to know Jochen, Piers, and Graham, and of course, Frank Gardner. But he didn't spend that much time with us because it was sort of his home area. But we did have a fabulous time. I mean, camaraderie was second to none. And we'd play squash and play tennis and so swimming. And we'd go water skiing at night with Chris Amon on this lake. And I mean, it was absolutely magnificent. And I, I feel sad for the guys today because they don't have time to pick their nose before they're on to the next, you know, um, simulator or whatever it is to do what they do. But because they, they love doing it. And the only way they can do it is the way they do it now. So there's no good reflecting on my stuff. But we were lucky to have such magnificent times. So I, and I had some good results. I actually beat Jochen at Levin in my heat, but I always think he might have let me win. And then I gave him a big, I pushed him a lot. I, somehow somebody, somebody sent me some footage from those races the other day in black and white. I couldn't believe it. You can hardly see it, but I mean, it's really bad definition. 
but you know, there's me in a Ferrari, Chris in a Ferrari. They're not, he's not even in colors, so it's bloody difficult. And it was amazing, you know, to see all that stuff and see the safety or lack of it. I mean, it was a wonderful trip, a wonderful series. Yeah. And honestly, because that, you know, in a way, the, the Tasman series was a sort of high point of your Ferrari Formula One career, because it, once you came back from that, it was probably quite apparent that things weren't all sort of right in the state of Denmark, as it were. Yeah, well, they didn't, they, I mean, we, I didn't know what they were doing. The fact was, I never lived in Italy. And in those days, Chris lived in Modena. I know Jackie had gone off somewhere else for that, for the 69. But no, none of them lived in it. Chris was the only one. And I, on reflection, now I look back at it, or look back even four, five, six years later, I should have lived in Italy, but I couldn't because of my wife being so well. And the fact that she was having, she'd had a son or was having a son, because you know, she had him in, in uh, January, February. And um, so I, there's no way that I could have lived in Italy and my marriage would have been over if I had. But then you shouldn't get married if you're going to be a racing driver and have to live in Italy or anywhere in the world. But it, it was only latterly that, or later on that drivers sort of congregated around you know, the hub of, of racing. So they were on hand to do what they had to do. I mean, what a stupid idea for me living in England and having to get on a plane every time Ferrari wanted to go testing. I mean, they happily, happily, I mean, you know, one never talked about budgets. I mean, I mean, I got 250 pounds for a Formula 2 race and 500 pounds for a Grand Prix. I don't know what I got for Le Mans, but it, wasn't, it was probably 500 quid. But, and it was still quite, quite good money, but it wasn't like comparison today. Well, you can't relate it to today. But we, as I said, we never did it for the money. Hmm. But... Um, you know, that, set, that, that year, 69, certainly was something that we didn't expect that Ferrari would not have done something more specific about racing. And it was strange because the next year, of course, they had that, you know, I don't know if the formula changed, but certainly everybody had the flat 12s and that sort of thing. And I'd love to have had a, one of those, but... Yeah, but it was, it, guess, was a, it was a steel crisis, wasn't it? And, and Ferrari just sort of slowly closed down its operations. Oh, I didn't realize. I, 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 think, you know. I, I, th I might be wrong with that, but, I, but Ferrari did kind of, because they suddenly started just running the one car yeah. and, it, and they really yeah. did kind of just... Well, they, they, they ran a car for a little bit for, for Pedro Rodriguez and NART financed him to drive a few races for Pedro. And I went, where did that come from? And Chris didn't drive, nor did I. Mm. And we did that Silverstone Daily Express meeting. And I remember I beat Chris. I was 10th and he was 12th or something in the piddling rain, we are on Firestones. The car would have been so good if it had been on the right tires. I think, you know, tires made a heck of a difference in those days. And I was, I was pretty good in the rain because I had a really good race against Jochen, as I say, in, in Australia and finished close second to him there. So in the um, Lady Wigram or whatever, whatever it's called, Warwick Farm anyway. And, um, but you know, they, they were, they, the Firestone were rubbish at that point we should have been on good years of Dunlops to be honest so that was life anyway that was that was it and uh, you know we just okay we're not going racing so therefore you don't get any money so it's okay what do I do now and then they said well okay and then come June I went we went to Monza for the Formula 2 Lotteria which I had done one year before my first race for them and I was on the back of the grid with Clay Riggins we did Thruxton as well and Clay and I were last on the grid the two of us and, and I mean, you know, if I looked at me and went, oh, yeah, but you're, you're over the hill. You've had it, Derek, you're 28. But um, Clay was a brilliant driver. He would have driven anything. If, if he would have gone quick, he made it go quick. And he drove the car again with me or against me. And we were both at the back of the grid at Bruxton. 
And then we went to Monza and I couldn't get anywhere near the time as I'd done the year before. And that's when we thought, this is crazy. The same cars on the same tires. We, we don't get a look in. And that was at that point that Ferrari was of that second week of June that Ferrari said, that's it. And then fortunately I got the opportunity to drive for McLaren, but they let that make a British Grand Prix. And, but at that point, um, Ferrari had no future. They didn't, they, you know, I think I was out of their picture and I think they could see that Jackie X would, might come back to them. And I, I don't think even Chris drove that car. Chris left too. And he went and did his own thing. So, um, who the heck was the other driver with the B? I met him in Regazzoni. I think he stayed and raced for that. Yeah. But, you know, suddenly the whole thing filtered out. Filtered out. Of course, we weren't on financial contract retainers. At least I wasn't because I never thought about it. I didn't have a manager, as you know, as I said. So it, I just ended up earning no money and being rather disappointed as the year flipped away, you know, because yeah. I really did nothing. But interestingly, you know, if you look back at your, you know, if I look back at your career now, you're, you're known for your, your sports car victories um, yeah. and championships. And it was, I suppose, in a funny kind of way, that happening to you with Ferrari, you were then called up to race for Ferrari at Le Mans in 70, having driven a yeah. private car in, at Spa and 1,000 kilometres. Yeah. And that was, I think, the Spa 1,000 kilometres was really your first taste of sports cars. So in a weird kind of way, Ferrari is perhaps to thank for you getting into sports cars and then all those Le Mans wins and, and championships? In a way, yes, I, I don't go over the board about what you do. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, find a silver lining here. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was, basically it was Jack Swatters of Garage Francochon, the Curie Francochon, just, you know, out, uh, it's outside uh, Brussels. And Jack, I got to know during my time at Ferrari. And he's the most charming gentleman you know, you know, he's a Ferrari dealer. But what I didn't realize till in recent years was the fact that Ferrari, with his racing program, is highly supported by all these dealers. And I didn't realize that. They put loads of money in to keep the racing team going because, as they say, if you win on Sunday, you sell on Monday. And so, therefore, you know, the, 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 all, not all of them. I know Marinello did, and I know Jacques did, and I know the Americans did, but there were no doubt others that poured money into to the Ferrari coffers that make him go to help him go for motor racing. And, um, and because there was no sponsorship really in those days, we had nothing on the cars. So, um, you know, uh, when it came to Jack Swatter's offering me that drive at Spa, I mean, obviously I was staggered. I didn't really know Ferrari had a sports car and, um, cause they, nobody, but it wasn't even built at the factory. I think it was built down the road anyway at another place, but as I hadn't been there since July anyway, I wasn't likely to have seen it. And, um, you know, he, Jack offered me the drive and I did quite well. And I beat a couple of the drivers in the Ferrari works team at Spa that, you know, the red cars, we were in the yellow one. And, um, you know, I don't know what happened. I mean, the car caught a light and the windows got broken and God knows what else. It was a nightmare of a race, but, you know, we fought on and did moderately well. And from that, of course, I was going to drive for Jack Swatters at the mall that year, 1970. And then uh, Mr. Ferrari obviously contacted him and said, we want Mr. Bell in our car at Le Mans. And, uh, you know, Jack came on to me and said, come on, you've got to drive for Enzo at Le Mans. And I said, no, I don't see why. He's done nothing for me. Um, I know that we had really, but I was a bit disappointed in what had happened at Ferrari towards the end. And um, so Jack said, you've got to drive for him. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I was going to race Formula 2 at Enna. And this is 1970. And I was on the way to Enna, so I dropped into Brussels, um, you know, as one does. 
and Jack met me at the airport and he said, you're going to have to drive for Enzo. And I said, I don't want to, Jacques. And he said, I said, why? And he said, well, if you don't drive for Enzo, you won't give me any spare parts to my program. So that was it. So I went, okay, I'll drive for Enzo. And, I'm, and of course, Jack did rather well in the in the 24-hour and I drove with, with um, Ronnie Peterson, which was wonderful. We were mate, mates together through Formula 2. And, um, you know, he was a wonderful, wonderful driver, super kid, super guy. And I enjoyed it very much, as much as, as that experience was. But, of course, it was on the old spot, uh, old Le Mans, as you know. And it was quite an experience. I mean, we, 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 there was a massive crash, which I didn't create that was behind me. But everybody thought I was part of it during the race. But I was gone. I was around the corner and away. But uh, just through the kink before you come to White House, uh, which was another story. But, um, uh, you know, it was, it was wonderful to drive for Enzo there. Um, and I, I certainly didn't let the side down. And then, of course, um, they didn't do many races. And then Jack Swatters had me back to drive at Kyle Army at the end of the year. But in that meantime, I'd had the call from a, a company from Germany called Porsche yeah. to drive the 917. So. And, just, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. But they, it, I, just before we finish, I wanted to touch briefly on kind of Ferrari now. And you were saying that you went back to Monza in 1969 and you were going slower than you were in 1968 with the same car, the same tires. It, it, you know, there, there are reflections of Ferrari this year in Formula One. And it does yeah. seem to me that, I don't know what it is, but Ferrari does have these very, very big lows. You know, we've seen it with McLaren. It happens with all Formula One teams. No one can stay at the front forever. But what, why is it with Ferrari? Is it a political thing? Is it, um, <clears throat> is it because yeah. they only want to employ Italian people? Or, or you know, how, why does it keep happening? Oh. It certainly seemed to have worked that when they got Ross Braun and various people like that to come in, everything started to go well. Very organized people. And they didn't, they've never, no Italian teams have never had that much of a, you know, a great record for, for sort of, you know, producing the best results, although Ferrari did. But look at the team they had with Michael and John Todd and, and um, Ross Braun, for example. And I mean, I think even in a slight way, I, when I went and drove for Willie Cowson with the Alfa Romeo T33s in 1975, <clears throat> Alphas couldn't do a thing prior to that. Out comes the, the, that car, the T33, and Alto Delta are going to run the cars or they produce them. And Willie Cowson went in there and said, come on, you know, let me have some of your cars and bits and pieces. And we went off and we won, I think, eight races because it was run by a German. And, and you know, with the organization and the preparation and having seen the state of the cars that came from out of Delta to us, it was amazing. And, you know, um, you know, I, we drove, I drove with Pescarola and we, I think we ran four races and I won one on Arvis, the last race it ever did on the Arvis a year later after the in, the, in 76. The cars were wonderful, but they were run by Willie Cowson Racing. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it needs an injection of, management and I think I can't tell you what the Ferrari thing is because there's so like these days there's so many people involved but somebody it, it was it actually ends up with the leap at the top doesn't it yeah um, it's a bit like Trump you know, <laughs> thanks very much you know he you know if, if he's not doing his job the rest of the team can't work under him properly and yeah. I, I so I don't know who that is at Ferrari yeah do you I mean right. you know your your career was you know, it's very much Porsche. I always think of you as a Porsche man or, or more recently Bentley. Um, and it's funny, I've never sort of thought of you as, as a Ferrari man. I think just because so much of your success came in Porsches. 
do you, you know, looking at the photos behind you, um, you obviously still have a, very much a soft spot for Ferrari. Yeah, very much. It's strange. I suppose it's because when you're young, you're much more um, influenced by, by certain things. And Ferrari was the name that was, you know, uh, Ferrari was the name that was on my lips the whole of my, my youth when I followed it. Moss was the other one. And Sterling always wanted to really race for Ferrari, but never ultimately did that much. For example, I didn't follow him or anything, don't get me wrong. But, um, I, you know, I think you have ideas in your mind as a young person of where you would like to be. And as I said, I mean, my dream was to race for Ferrari, but I, it wasn't like, oh, well, I will be racing for Ferrari. I was like, oh, can you imagine? And that was it, gone. The, the dream had gone. And if you saw, and again, having seen that red Ferrari on the grid of the sports car race at Monza, you know, that was it. I was a Ferrari person. There weren't Porsches there then. You know, so I didn't have, I couldn't get involved with it. And, and, and then you met the man himself. And although I'd met uh, Dr. Professor Porsche maybe once, uh, he could walk by me and you'd never know who I was. Now, the Porsche family now I know really well. And Wolfgang Porsche and I are close friends and we spent time together. And his, and his family are totally in contact with, with my son, Sebastian, all the time, you know, on Instagram and whatever. And um, I'm close to Porsche people now, much more that Fry, but, but in those informative years, the thing which I was, what I was, I was, I was a Ferrari person. Mm. And my dream was to have a Ferrari, and I have one now. It's my, it was my dream to have one. Mm. And eventually I got it, but I was a little old. Actually, I actually had one when I was about 33, but, but after that, I was a Porsche man totally. But I thought one day I'm going to have another Ferrari. Mm. I don't know why. It's just, I, I mean, yeah. it's it just one of the. Year, doesn't it? It has a sort of a lure to it. It's, it does. Know, yes, yeah. thank you. It's a lure. Yeah. Yeah. Can't put it more than that. Um, and I think the other thing, even with the Ferrari, was the sound of that V12 was just yeah. a unique sound. And um, I, I, I mean, and, and people say, yeah, but he didn't do really much for you. And he really, he didn't. And I remember Jackie Stewart saying, among Ken Terrell and a couple of other people said, if you go to Ferrari, John Wire, that he will ruin your career. And it was before, as, as I was about to go to Ferrari, because at that time that I went to Ferrari, back in 68, I, had a, I was testing a, a Cooper Formula One for John Cooper. I was asked by um, Colin Chapman to, to test the IndyCar at Silverstone after Jimmy had had his accident. And then John Wire came on to me to drive the GT40 at Le Mans in 68. So, you know, I guess suddenly I was, you know, in, in demand. And makes you wonder who the hell else was out there if I was the only one there. <laughs> I guess there was nobody racing anymore. But um, these days, they wouldn't have a problem with a list of guys wanting to run. And, I mean, I never had to phone them up and say, what about me? They were, you know, phone, get Derek Bell, I guess, because I'd come up well through Formula 3 and then into Formula 2 and done those first two, three races. And then Ferrari were after, Ferrari were after Derek Bell, I suppose. We should be sniffing after him too. <laughs> but it was John Wire and, and Ken Terrell and people like that that said, he'll ruin your career now I, I reflect on that and i think i don't know that he did but the fact that he i had a, a disappointing formula one career although thank you know i had the sixth place u.s grand prix for john surtees and had a great experience with john which got worse as the years went by as far as the cars were concerned but um you know it was a very i mean for that Ferrari period was pretty, was pretty darn special, I have to admit. And it always just sticks in my memory, to be honest. Yeah. Well, Derek, 
we've we've got to leave it there but thank you so much for sparing so much time um all the way from your from your sunny spot in florida we'll, we'll hopefully see you over here soon um yeah. maybe not this year but hopefully next year uh, but to everyone watching and everyone listening thank you so much i uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as i did yeah. and uh, yes. we'll we'll see you all soon bye bye for yeah. now I could have done with some pasta and a glass of Lambrusco, but thanks very much. I next, next time we'll get something FedExed over, ready to go from, <laughs> from the restaurant in Italy. Yeah, thanks. Man. Yeah, Derek, thank you. Thank you.